Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Dirt Road Discussions, where we are all about agriculture all the time. I'm your host, Cam Hammond. On the call with me, as always, is Ott Clark, the co-host of Dirt Road Discussions. Ott, what do you know today? Cameron, it's, a, it's another beautiful day. Uh, sunshine, 75, as per usual. 75? I was going to say, Ott, I think, it's, I think it's been a little warmer than that lately. Well, maybe you're listening to it a different day than I am. <laughs> you're right. In general, it's uh, sunny and 75. But yeah, I was going to say it's been uh, it's been kind of warm lately, um, which kind of leads us into the topic of today's podcast. So we've got a fantastic episode of Dirt Road Discussions. And Ott, as I just prefaced, I'm going to warn you, it's, it's going to get a little toasty. So love it. Got some I love water. the puns. <laughs> Thank you. I work hard on those. So, um, well, before we we get into it, just want to thank our listeners again for tuning in. We'd invite you to follow Dirt Road Discussions wherever you get your podcasts. And um, as a reminder, we we do stories that are evergreen. So we'd invite you to go back and listen to some of our earlier episodes and and uh, get caught up. So, uh, well, Otto, you ready to take another trip down the dirt road? Let's roll. Let's do it. Uh, so for our listeners, I have a question. Have you ever wondered how many factors really go into wildfire management? Well, so like I said, it's wildfire season, so let's stick around. So I hope you'll stick around with us as we explore this important topic. Uh, today, we are thrilled to be joined by Paul Hesberg. Paul is a senior research ecologist and is an expert in this field, and we are just excited to to pick his brain on on this topic and learn more from him. So, Paul, how are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me on the podcast. It's good to be here. Well, thank you. We we look forward to this visit and excited to jump into into this topic. So, Paul, if you don't mind, could you just start off the podcast by telling us a little bit about yourself and and more about your background? Uh, born and raised in uh, Minnesota. Went to forestry school there back in the 70s. Uh, moved out west to Oregon State University to go to grad school. And I stayed West and I've been out here now 44 years. And I've been working in the inland Northwest doing research on the ecology of forests, the uh, the ecology of fire. And when forests change, I asked the question, what does that do to uh, wildfire behavior? And changes in the role of uh, native and non-native insects and diseases in the woods. So that's basically what I've been studying and lately spending a lot of time looking at the nexus between changing forests, changing climate, changing fire. Paul, I I watched a video that you did. Uh, it was at a TED Talk. I believe TED Bend is what it was called. You showed a beautiful picture of this majestic forest. All the mountains were just covered in trees. And you asked the, the crowd, look at this beautiful forest. And, you know, they, they all oohed and awed. And then you kind of told a different story. Can you describe how forests looked a thousand years ago versus what we have currently? You bet. It's a really great question. We, uh, we know what we see and we know what we experience. And so we're constantly surprised when we see a photo from even 80 or 100 years ago of an area we're familiar with, and it doesn't look anything like that today. Well, a thousand years ago, uh, Native Americans, uh, the indigenous people who peopled this part of the world, 
10,000 years ago, they were living on the landscape and there were probably 15 to 25 million of them uh, cultivating the landscape with fire. So the first thing you'd have seen a thousand years ago is a Western landscape with a lot of fire in it. And in fact, we now know that in the U.S., uh, excluding Alaska and Hawaii, somewhere between 30 and 50 million acres burned every single year in the United States. And if you think about that, that means that an area equivalent to the U.S. burned every 20 to 25 years. So fire was a constant player. It was burning up dead wood. It was thinning out forests. The drier the forest, the more frequent the fire, the colder the forest and the wetter the forest, the less frequent. So you had different kinds of fire severity scattered across the landscape. And it produced this really cool patchwork of forest conditions. And by that, I mean, uh, you had variation in which species grew on the landscape. Down in the dry conditions, south aspects, ridge tops, you had pines that had developed a thick bark and they were pretty open growing, often sort of sparse woodland conditions. And as you went further and further up the hill, you would have uh, denser forest conditions and the species would change. But everywhere you looked, there was evidence of fire and it created this pretty cool patchwork of conditions. When we're finding that that's true from Arizona, New Mexico, and Southern California, all the way up into British Columbia. So these dynamics were this interaction was very, very widespread, uh, creating these patchworks of conditions. And everywhere you looked, indigenous burning was a part of the mix, not just lightning burning. And Paul, could you describe a, a patchwork? Um, are, you, are you talking about small groves of trees? Is that a patch? <laughs> well, a, a good way to think about it is the the forest conditions were tied to the topography. So if you were if you're looking down on a landscape or looking at it in a panorama, you'd see south aspects and ridge tops being very, very differently treated in terms of their species composition and their openness or the closeness of their canopy. So topography was a really important driver for how much rain and how much sun you got. And that drove which species made a living there and how much fire you got. So it's uh, it's sort of like the, the topography um, mosaic is the forest mosaic that's very much embedded in the conditions. That makes sense? You bet. So, Paul, how the landscape looked uh, back in the day is is different than, than we view it today. Is that just because... Um, we started getting more involved with, with wildfire management or, or, or what exactly contributed most to that change? So there's a lot of things that uh, work together to bring about the change. And an awful lot of this wasn't intentional. It's just how it, it, how it added up. If you stop and think about it, if you've got 15, 20, 25 million indigenous tribes burning the landscape and now imagine European colonists, colonists come to the landscape and they introduced all sorts of uh, European diseases like smallpox and typhus and things like that. And by about 1800, 18, yeah, early 1800s, probably 90% of the indigenous population was killed off by these introduced diseases. And so you could imagine that that would produce a really significant reduction in the amount of uh, intentional burning that's going on. By 1850s, indigenous tribes were moved to 
reservations. And so it further curtailed that burning. So now it's mostly just lightning fires that are happening. European settlers are coming across the landscape, they're homesteading. And uh, early on, they would copy some of the Indian burning that was going on. But more and more people wanted to keep fire out of the woods. They thought it was unsafe. And so starting back at about 1850, we start trying to curtail uh, those 30 to 50 million acres of the U.S. that were burning every year. And uh, by early 1900s, the U.S. government and a lot of agencies that we partnered with um, were getting pretty good at putting fires out. By 1935, uh, we were putting out 98% of the fires across the U.S. landscape. We got excellent at And the only fires that burned, burned under windy, hot, you know, severe fire weather conditions. So, so we literally went from fire being the most common thing on the landscape to curtailing it. And as you can imagine, uh, once you are keeping fire out of the woods, you'll be seeing that trees are going to regenerate and fill in those open conditions and so forth. You layer on to that the fire suppression that was going on. We became really effective at keeping fire out of the woods. And so trees filled in, dead wood accumulated. That's the kind of thing that happened. And that's why I show those pictures from different places, because it really shows you how fast that happens when you keep fire out of the woods. It doesn't take long for <clears throat> trees to, to grow where they can. They want to grow. And, and if there's a, a position for them, they'll find it. That's exactly right. Can you talk a little bit about maybe you, you mentioned diseases coming through and, and hurting the, the native population. What about diseases, pests? Invasive species, have they played a role as well? Uh, in the forests themselves? Yeah, they've, they've played a huge role. So, so think about the lodgepole pine forest you've been in and uh, the mountain pine beetle that you've seen. If you have a lack of fire, then you have wall-to-wall -wall lodgepole pine developing over time. And so that patchwork used to be really potent influence, a potent sort of negative feedback to, to bark beetle outbreaks because bark beetles, when they attack trees and they emerge, they have to mature and they fly about a kilometer to find other stressed trees to be able to land on, lay eggs in and attack them. And the patchwork had many open spaces that were much bigger than a kilometer. So beetles that would emerge from a stand or a patch that they'd attacked uh, would uh, die because as they dispersed, they didn't find uh, suitable forest conditions. That was true of Douglas fir beetle, um, beetles and ponderosa pine, many different species that, that have a native beetle. The beetles are typically pretty host specialized. So, you know, Doug fir stays primarily in Douglas fir. Mountain pine beetle goes to lodgepole pine and ponderosa pine and some others. So as you got denser, you got more stressed trees. As you got more forested, you had stressed uh, stands of trees next to other stressed stands. And so you can see that there's some feedback to make the landscape sort of better for beetles. That we sort of set the dining room table over the last 150 years for worsening beetle outbreaks. Uh, same thing is true with root diseases in grand fur and white fur and Douglas fir, the more of those species you have growing in the landscape, the, the more likely these diseases 
can spread from patch to patch and so forth over time. So Paul, going back to some of the, the, the fire suppression discussion. So it sounds like when we started to get really good at that, it's almost like there were some un- unintended consequences and we were almost victims of our own success with that. Is that, is that a good way of putting it? Yeah, there's a couple of things working there. The climate in mid 20th century really helped us out. We had 50 years of pretty cool climate. And so our fire suppression successes were amazing. And because we were successful, we sort of doubled down. And obviously there was no, we didn't understand the, the primary role of fire in these ecosystems at the time. People were telling us, but there weren't that many reports. And so we had, a, we had a great mid-century from 35 to 1985 of putting fires out, and we doubled down and got super good at it and did a pretty good job of keeping fire out of the woods for most of the century. And um, what we got is something we never planned on and never expected. Paul, we've been talking about the Pacific Northwest for the most part. Is this the story across America and around the world? Are, is every person, you know, every country having these same issues? Not every country, but those that are sort of in intermediate or temperate productivity zones. They, it's true of the boreal and subboreal forests around the globe. It's true of the north temperate forests that we see. So uh, the loss of indigenous burning was a big deal globally. Uh, Aborigines in Australia were master burners and they were pushed aside. And so Australia uh, didn't get the positive effects of intentionally lit fires. Indigenous people, people of the entire North American landscape and the, the narrative of their burning is really, really a key. The Mediterranean countries, uh, very, very fire prone. And there's a very deep history of burning until recently to uh, as people go to more and more to urban centers, these sort of uh, farmed and small plot forests that they once had, folks are leaving them and they're moving to the cities. And so, you know, Portugal and Spain and other Mediterranean countries are now getting fire regimes. And with the warming climate, uh, fire regimes are spreading to some places where we never expected, like Scandinavian countries and up into the boreal forests and so forth. So it's a big deal globally. There's more fire, there's more severe fire, there's much larger fires. And this nexus of keeping fire out of the woods and then it getting hotter and drier is uh, creating something really worth uh, noticing and doing something about. Cameron, if I could chime in one more time. Paul, can you describe prescribed burns? And are they a, a viable option um, or is it not you know, not up to par. Uh, prescribed burns are, they're carefully planned. You develop a burn plan and you implement it under the right conditions. When you have the right amount of dead wood, prescribed burners are trying to reduce the dead wood on the forest floor and thin out small trees and uh, fuel ladders. Those are the, the layered uh, young and small, medium, and larger sized trees that carry the flames from the dead wood up into the crowns, the canopies of forest. Uh, They're also conducted after thinning and regeneration harvests and other stand improvement work to reduce uh, post-harvest slash. Um, In terms of uh, scorecard, prescribed burns stay within the containment lines that we scratch. 
um, about 99% of the time. And so we're pretty good at it. Uh, climate warming is narrowing some of our windows and our weather's getting a little sketchier. So it's there are periods of the year when it's getting harder to, to find the appropriate window or the weather forecast will change suddenly. And, and then we have to deal with that. So, but prescribed burns have a much higher success than than uh, wildfires do. And it's one of the reasons why we advocate for them. Yeah. And with those pr prescribed birds, Paul, are typically that, that's up to each state to determine what the prescribed burn will entail. Are those fairly common practice within each state or, or what kind of determines? Uh, well, state, state agencies and fed agencies, right? Um, mm -hmm. And uh, some... Um, non-industrial and industrial private landowners um, also do that um, as fits the situation, right? So they, uh, in the practice, is develop a burn plan, wait for the right conditions, uh, get the skilled people there, scratch your lines, get your hose lays ready to go, and and uh, implement the lighting. And state and fed organizations work together very often to implement the burns. Paul, are there any other any areas across the U.S. that are really doing uh, fire management perfectly. Is there any success stories? Yeah, there's some great success stories. Uh, there's great success stories in every Western state too. I would say the folks who've been burning the longest have the best stories to tell in the United States. So this would be uh, the Southern states, you know, so the Carolinas, Georgia, Basically, everything below the Mason-Dixon line that's been doing pres prescribed burning, uh, they've been doing it for 40 or 50 years, and it's a, it's a very well-developed art, and they burn uh, the same patches of ground uh, every two, three years. And so the expected fire behavior coming out of their burns is exquisite, and they're burning amazing acres. I think in 2015, uh, just as an example, Georgia burned nearly a million acres uh, under prescribed burning, a lot of states, Florida, the Carolinas, uh, they'll burn 300 to 500,000 acres a year just to make sure that when fire comes, they get the right behavior. So, and the prescribed fire councils have been working really well for a very long time. And so the citizens are used to the burning and to the low levels of smoke. And so they tend to prefer it over the, you know, the belching wildfire smoke that goes on for weeks and months. Well, I would imagine, Paul, that there's probably you know lots of lots of misconceptions about maybe pres prescribed burns or or wildfires in general. When these fires are, are covered by, let's say, you know, media outlets, do they do they tend to get their facts correct mostly, or are there what, what misconceptions do you see regarding this? So there are there are misconceptions uh, about fire in the media, and there are so many of you know I literally can't speak to all of them, <laughs> but. Some of them get it mostly right. Uh, some seem to be uh, more intentionally a false narrative. Uh, it just really depends. But I, but I actually really appreciate you taking the time to meet with me on this because these questions are really important for people to understand about whether we know how to prescribe burn and what's our success look like and. And we continue to do this you know, looking forward. And the answer is got really good methods and we can keep doing this looking forward. And I think uh, I think the, the lesson for all of us is to read more broadly, listen more broadly uh, and understand the nuance 
because uh, very oftentimes you'll hear sound bites that stick with you and you, you got to wonder, did they get it right? Or should I look more deeply? Right. Paul, I, I've been dreading the question, but there's a lot of, a lot of loggers here in Idaho and, and I support the logging industry. Can you give me the, the pros and cons of uh, the logging industry and, and its effects on the, the mega fires? Well, I don't know why. <clears throat> I don't know why you're worried about that question. <laughs> so there's an awful lot said about logging and uh, some of the comments are conflating issues. And one of the things I would have to say about uh, logging and timber harvest methods is that there's nothing wrong with the methods themselves. It's sort of like saying, don't use a kitchen knife because some, some folks have used them badly in the past. They're tools. And the question is, do you have your your uh, mindset right about what tools are best in a particular place? And it depends on the intention and it depends on the execution. There's all sorts of tools that we can apply in forests that are too dense, for example, where we can't just use a drip torch because we cannot control the fire behavior or the windows are too narrow for us to be able to control the fire behavior because of the fuel buildups. In those particular cases, going in and doing well-placed harvests that allow us to be able to basically get rid of a lot of those trees that have grown in and densified the forest. It's a smart thing to do. But the the answer li lives in the ex execution. Did you choose the right method for the ground? Are you leaving the right trees in terms of species and sizes? And when you're thinking about climate change and wildfires, uh, those are really key questions. But those there's nothing wrong with the tools. It's, it's what's the intention behind them and did you execute well? Well, I'm glad to hear that. On a very similar note, grazing. We have a, a lot of, you know, cattle ranchers, uh, sheep producers. What is their job, I guess, when it comes to, to fire management? Well, the uh, grazing is a, not only essential for people who are raising domestic livestock, but there's good grazing and poor grazing, right? We've got uh, it, some of the most horrible overgrazing that ever occurred, occurred in the late 1700s and 1800s, where there weren't range riders, there wasn't herd management. And so folks didn't manage stubble height for uh, their sheep and cattle. And an awful lot of those uh, grazing areas were, were severely impacted. I, I think some of the worst data we ever saw was from 1895, when there was uh, big studies done on what do our rangelands look like? Well, our grazing is quite a bit different these days. And so if it's done properly and you follow the green up and you manage stubble height, it's an incredible tool in the toolbox for being able to influence where and how fire can spread on the landscape. So we, we go around, we, we teach kids in schools about uh, agriculture at times. And one of the things we'll talk about is, yeah, how grazing can, if it's if it's done correctly, can help prevent wildfires. And the kids always blows their mind that 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 that's that's a thing. So um, domestic livestock grazing was one of the reasons that fire frequency tanked in the 1800s. If you think mm -hmm. about it, cattle and sheep are eating the grasses, which were the conveyor belt for spreading many of the historical fires. And so if you've got lots of livestock out there over a really big space that can really change how fire flows. There's some, mm -hmm. there's some really excellent uh, books and papers written on the subject. If it's done right, grazing is an incredibly important tool in the toolkit. 
Paul, I, I live just south of uh, West Yellowstone, about 90 miles south. So, and I was born right around the time of those West Yellowstone fires. I think there was, I, I remember listening to my parents talk about it growing up, but I think there was a big debate about just letting it burn. Are you talking about the more recent fires or are you talking the ones in 1988? I was referencing the ones more in 1988, but if, if you could expound on the more recent ones, that'd be great as well. I was around for the 88 fires and I, I got a chance to see them both before and, and after the fires. And uh, fires were an important part of the, the forest ecology and the fire ecology of Yellowstone. Fires created uh, very unique, varied patchworks. There were uh, vast areas of wet and dry meadows in Yellowstone. Aspen is a really common forest cover type there. And so Aspen was a part of that landscape as well, both really tall and even sort of scrubby dryland Aspen forest or drier land uh, Aspen where the water availability was shorter term in the summer. So that patchwork influenced how fire uh, flowed on that landscape, if you will. And we took fire out of our national parks and our wildernesses for a fairly long time. And so when you stop and think about how fire happens again in in 88, there were a number of burn days that were wind-driven burn days. And the the Yellowstone, the park and fire in 88 in the park could have been so much worse. And there's obviously been decades of study since 88 looking at those wildfires. And, and I would say it could have been so much worse that many acres got a pretty decent first entry fire. And Yellowstone could have been leveled across extremely large areas, but instead you got fairly patchy effects. So there was an awful lot of talk about the whole thing being a catastrophe. I think what's probably not appropriate is the catastrophe talk every time there's a big fire, because what happens, how varied it is inside, is actually pretty important. A good way to think about it is, does a a large wildfire or a series of smaller fires set the park in motion for being able to accept more varied fire behavior and severity or not. If it sets the area up to have more varied severity and patch sizes of of fire, then it's a pretty good fire and it's doing some work. So uh, some of the more recent fires were were hotter and they burned in public and private spaces. And so depending upon how your land burned, you have a, a different opinion of whether the fire did good work or created harm, you know? Paul, when you look back, that was about 34 years ago, give or take, the the Yellowstone, uh, the Mm -hmm. big fire happened. Is the U.S. doing better? Um, Have we implemented a lot of those smart changes, at least in your opinion? We're doing good work. We're just not doing enough of it. In my opinion, an awful lot of the work that the fire did in 1988 uh, was pretty good or better work. And the notion that uh, public land management agencies let it burn is really a misnomer. And we've been working on not only that language, but also allowing fires to work and essentially provide good effects uh, when there were moderating fire weather days and a natural ignition and folks throw the book at fire when it's going to spread severely and really do harm. So 
it's easy to paint with a really broad brush, but the the devil's actually in a more detailed response than that. So let it burn had a lot of sizzle when you saw it in the headlines, but it actually did not represent what happened. We don't let things burn. They're very reasoned responses by people with a phenomenal amount of expertise. Yeah, we've gotten better. Are we able to do as much proactive work as we'd like? Nowhere near. Nowhere near as much as we'd like. And that's a social that's a social values discussion if you think about it, right? Are people giving us the social license in national parks and in wilderness and on state and federal forest lands to be able to do as much as quickly as possible? You can probably answer that for yourselves and I have. Well, once again, we've been joined by Paul Hesberg. Paul is a senior research ecologist. And Paul, when we talked earlier, you are also faculty at, at several different universities. What's something that you're you're working on maybe more recently as far as research? Or what's what's a project maybe that, uh, that's been your uh, game plan over the past little bit? Yeah. Uh, thanks, first of all, for the opportunity to speak with you today. It's been, it's been fun. Great questions. We've got about a dozen different research projects going on right now. And one of them that we're pretty excited about it is our reburn project. And here what we're doing is we're simulating the actual lightning ignitions of fires that we put out over the 20th century. And we're allowing them to burn because we have the daily weather and the ignition locations. And one of the things we're asking is, if the forest was allowed to burn and reburn, what sort of complexity and sort of robustness, uh, vigor at a large landscape scale comes out of that? And we're finding out that the time since fire patchwork that comes out of, you know, fires of different sizes overlaying other fires uh, is, is really the secret sauce for our forest landscapes. Having a lot of fire on the landscape that is of a benign sort of low to moderate intensity fire is what sets us up to be able to grow more forest in the long run. And here's why. When we have a fire and it burns trees in in a handful of years to decades, those trees fall down and they become dead wood, right? On the forest floor. But the next fire comes and it cleans that up. It, It consumes that. And so instead of having forest grow up with a lot of dead wood on the ground, reburning allows a lot of forest to develop where that dead wood was consumed by the second and the third fires. And so you can store more forest that way on the landscape when you have this ecology of forest reburning going on. And that's been a really exciting area. And we're doing more and more of this kind of modeling now throughout the West and in Canada. Paul, if you were uh, elected president of the world, Tomorrow, what would be your your first thing to, to help in fire management? Wow, that would be a terrible mistake to have me <laughs> wouldn't it? You were our last choice, but you you made it. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> thank you for putting me dead last. <laughs> I would safely and effectively reintroduce fire to our landscapes, and I would uh, as much as possible, and I would fund ongoing maintenance treatments to maintain forests and a a safe, renewed relationship with fire, basically. The, the bottom line we're learning from all of our research, uh, ours and that of colleagues throughout Western Laboratories, is we have to learn to live with fire again. It's not going away. We're never going to have a future without fire and smoke. 
So the question becomes, how do you want your fire and how do you want your smoke? And I think we can do an awful lot to live peacefully with it. So as president of the world, I'd I would put a lot of energy in moving in that direction. Well, j- just to say, Paul, I I wouldn't have you as dead last. I'm not sure what Ot's uh-huh. talking about there. You'd be much higher on my list. But so here on Duro Discussions, you know, we have a lot of our listeners who are involved in agriculture. So just for those who who are involved in it, you know, what would be some advice you have as far as uh, what we can do to help educate, to help promote? Um, responsible fire management. What what can we do to to help out with with what you do in 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 your line of work? That's a great question. I appreciate you asking it. In the United States, we've developed a strategy called the National Cohesive Wildland Fire Strategy, or just Cohesive Strategy for short. It's got three kind of uh, uh, legs on the stool. One of them is to uh, create and maintain fire adapted communities, right? That means make sure our homes can't burn if there's embers blowing our way or flames nearby. So shake roofs aren't a great deal. Uh, juniper hedges underneath the bay window aren't a great idea. <laughs> Storing the firewood against the house, uh, make sure you have screens over your birdie blocks and vents and they're, you know, eighth inch uh, so the embers can't get through. Uh, infant mesh, stuff like that. Get your house and your yard and your neighborhood and work together to make sure if a fire comes your way, everybody's going to be able to keep their stuff and keep their home. I'd work with the, the larger community to use tools like thinning and burning and grazing really sensibly to change the way fire can come to your communities. Like we talked about earlier, domestic livestock grazing, uh, using sheep and goats and grazing and following the grain up, right? And having um, range riders who can help you move your stock in a timely way is a great bed hedge to change that fast moving fire in the grasslands and the shrublands. So it's a great tool, but we got to get it right and then work and promote not only fire adapted communities and safe and effective fire suppression, which is the second leg on the stool, but create resilient landscapes um, and be a promoter of that at a large scale and and fairly quickly, we can change the way fire comes to our communities and our cities and how much smoke we're going to eat. So be a promoter of of good methods and applying them at a good scale. It's a a huge help. And then I'd say get involved in community dialogues about this. Get educated about not only uh, how doing these things affects things you value, but uh, enter into the dialogue as a as someone who's boned up on it and uh, and be a change agent in your communities. Paul, we, we have the same question on every podcast, but here on the Dirt Road Discussion podcast, we like to look down the road. Uh, what do you see as the future of wildfires, uh, fire management, and, and everything else that fires have to do with uh, here in the United States? Uh, the future is in more fire and it's living better with it. When we look at the effect of the drying and the warming, you know, the long-term droughts and stuff, uh, what we're seeing is there's going to be more fire and the drying and the warming is what drives the area burned. It's the fueliness of the landscape that drives how hot and severe it burns. And if you got a lot of fuel and the the wind and the weather is uh, curing it out and making it bone dry, then that's a dangerous future. So I see that in the next 
10, 20 years, uh, we need to, to really work hard on bringing fire back, literally uh, fighting fire with fire, just better fire. Well, with that, we will wrap up another episode of Dirt Road Discussions. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing uh, your knowledge on this important topic. Uh, we look forward to, to learning more about some of your research and and um, whatever we can do to help you your way here at Dirt Road Discussions, uh, please let us know. So, You bet. It's been fun. Thanks for reaching out. With that, this has been another episode of Dirt Road Discussions, and we will see you down the road.